It's Monday, September 6th, and you've got Oz in your ears. Thank you, thank you. That was the sound of our guest ensemble, the St. Louis Aquarium Choir. Hello, dear friends. I'm Assistant Pastor Hurley Barflyer here at the One Way Light Church in Tipping Point, Washington. We are gathered in the Hello Kitty Sanctuary to give thanks for all we have taken from others and to take back the world where that can happen again. I now have the pleasure of bringing to the pulpit a man whose books and tapes have inspired us all. He's on a national megachurch tour promoting his new book, From Zero Sum to Dim Sum. Welcome, Cubby Vineline. Well, thank you, Hurley, and thanks for the gift of my beautiful birth certificate necklace here. If only our so-called president would wear one around his neck, then we could all put away the terrible fear that he is the reincarnation of Saladin, the seed of Islam, risen from the tar sands of Araby to build a mosque upon the White House, turn us from west to east, from pork to lamb, from urban to turban! I look at my watch and ask myself, is it too late? I open the door on an empty future and wonder aloud, in this great struggle to regain our eternal prosperity and unquestioned dominance, need we fight alone? No! 1.3 billion pagans stand ready to join us in this glorious crusade. But, and this is the but we have to sit on and think this through, but we can't ask the hungry multitudes of the Middle Kingdom to sacrifice for us unless we are willing to sacrifice for them. We consume 25 times the resources they do, and while I think we definitely deserve it, we're going to have to cut back until together we own the world. See this bag? It's filled with egg rolls, sweet and sour pork, mushu beef and orange chicken. Take out, taken from the very mouths that will join us in the mighty mission. I say to you, I say to you, no more take out. No more takeout until we've taken our muscle cars back from the muscle men. No more Chinese food until all the Chinese have food. Please join me now. No more Chinese food till all Chinese have food. No more Chinese food till all Chinese have food. 
No more Chinese food. Kill all Chinese. Have food. No more Chinese food. Kill all Chinese. Oh yes, it's Labor Day, and David Osmond and I are working. Wouldn't you know? We're not lying on the beach, shucking what. Shucking potatoes every holiday, <laughs> every Christmas. We're working, we're working because we're entertainers. Dave. Oh, is that why? I don't know. The must. I be thought it was because we were the low man on the totem pole. Those are the people who have to work at on you know the midnight shift and, and have the... to look up at the butts of all the other people above them on the totem pole. But... Oh, and how? Yeah. yeah, but Labor Day. Labor Day is everybody's day off in America, isn't it? Isn't it supposed to be well, end of the summer? Well, it used to be. It also used to be a big deal where people in labor unions, which used to be a thing, you know, was very much of a, a, a identifiable group, would march, you know, probably, oh, yeah. you know, with their banners and with their various tools of their trade, you know, mm. and it was a big deal. Well, it was a remnant yeah. almost of English, you know, kind of almost an English working May Day parade. Well, I'll, uh, a little later in the show, I'll uh, entertain you and others with uh, the beginnings of vacations. You know, if you've got to work, you've got to take a vacation. Of course. But that course. didn't start until very recently, you know. Like, and in French, it's les vacances. It's the vacations. The. You can't just take a day. Well, in France, exactly. it takes a day just to get wherever you are, you know, I mean, or to become whoever you are. Oh, those French. So, yes, it's Labor Day, and we are laboring, and uh, we're glad to be here with all of you. It's, uh, it's quite remarkable. We're in, uh, we're, we've been chugging along since, since April, and we're still here, and America's still here. Uh, well, it, pieces of it are still here. Anyway. Parts of it and pieces parts, of, parts it. of it. And we're heading towards an election in one of the most confusing, toxic atmospheres I have ever experienced in my entire life. I still wake up in the morning and say, 20% of Americans think our president is a Muslim? I went, no, 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 that's right out of Allison, you know, Wonderland, not so. Oh, yeah, and a whole bunch of them, you know, don't want to build a mosque because, you know, that, if you build a mosque, that's basically a sign of victory over whatever land you put it on. Ooh. No, no, let's just take that off for the day. There'll be some poetry. There'll be a lie Good. out under None the sun. None of that. None of that. Easy. That is gone. This is, this is only going to be uh, the ease of being at work. There you go. And remember what Bob Dylan said What's about it? not wanting to work on Maggie's farm anymore because he was done with it. Yeah, you know, you know, work, work, work at the factory. Annie had a baby. Annie doesn't work here anymore. The gray lady tells us that housing will eventually recover from its great swoon, but many real estate experts now believe that homeowners will never again yield rewards like those enjoyed in the second half of the 20th century, when houses not only provided shelter, but also a plump nest egg. The wealth generated by housing in those decades, particularly on the coast, did more than assure the owners a comfortable retirement. It powered the economy, paying for the education of children and grandchildren, keeping the cruise ships and golf courses full, and the restaurants humming. More than likely, that era is gone for good. And how can we recover from an economy based on a housing bubble? I mean, you know, we, we spent vast amounts of money saving the world in World War II, and it created a, a majorly positive inflation, and it wasn't really a bubble. It was a surge of energy, people coming back, everybody had goods, and it da-da-da-da-da-da-da, but now we're basically looking at a post-housing bubble, and to make up that difference is, is almost impossible, if not impossible. Now, 
Quote, there is no iron law that real estate must appreciate, said economist Stan Humphreys. All those theories advanced during the boom about why housing is special, that more people are, are choosing to spend more on housing, that people are moving to the coast, that we're running out of usable land, they just didn't hold up. Instead, Mr. Humphreys and other economists say housing values will only keep up with inflation. A home will return the money an owner puts in each month and will not multiply the investment. Well, you know, when I was growing up, our house was not something we intended to double in value so that we could all go take a cruise and join the, join the country club. Dean Baker, co-director of the Center for Economic and Policy Research, estimates it'll take 20 years to recoup the $6 trillion of housing wealth that has been lost since 2005. After adjusting for inflation, values will never catch up. That's interesting. Uh, 20 years, because according to the... Um, Unemployment figures, the, the, the amount of jobs that we're putting into the economy now is such that it'll take 20 years for us to get back to what we used to call full employment. So we've got a big couple decades ahead. People shouldn't look at a home as a way to make money because it won't, Mr. Baker said. If the long term is grim, the short term is grimmer. Housing experts are bracing themselves for the release of the July sales figures. The data is expected to show a drop of as much as 20% from last year. Well, here's the news update. Came in today. Sales of previously owned U.S. homes dropped in July to their lowest pace in 15 years. The National Association of Realtors said sales dropped a record 27.2% over last year. That's the lowest since May 1995, when the whole thing, of course, exploded. The supply of homes sitting on the market might rise to as much as 12 months. means 12 months' worth of homes are sitting out there. It would take a year to sell it, and it's just growing. About twice the level of a healthy market. That would push down prices as all of those sellers compete to secure a buyer, adding to a slide that has already chopped off more than 30% at home values. It's happening already. Here on Whidbey Island, sales are down remarkably, and we're not alone. In an annual survey conducted by the economists Robert J. Schiller and Carl Case, hundreds of new owners in four communities, Alameda County near San Francisco, Boston, Orange County south of Los Angeles, and Milwaukee, once again said they believe prices would rise about 10% a year for the next decade. Well, of course, they're wrong. With minor swings in sentiment, the latest results reflect what new buyers almost want to feel. At the boom's peak in 2005, they said prices would go up. When the market was sliding in 2008, they still said prices would go up. Well, what are you going to do? People think it's a law of nature, said Mr. Schiller, who teaches at Yale. For the first half of the 20th century, he said, expectations followed the opposite paths. Houses were seen as way... For the first half of the 20th century, he said, expectations followed the opposite path. Houses were seen the ways cars are now, as a consumer durable that the buyer eventually used up. The notion of housing as an investment first began to blossom after World War II, when the nesting urges of returning soldiers created a construction boom. Demand was stoked as their bumper crop of children grew up and bought places of their own. The inflation of the 70s, with increased values of hard assets and liberal tax policies, both helped make housing a good bet. So did the long decline in mortgage rates from the early 1980s. 
despite all these tailwinds, prices rose modestly for most of the period. Real home prices increased only 1.1% against inflation. By the late 1990s, however, the rate was 4% a year. Happy homeowners were taking out $100 billion a year from their houses, which paid for a lot of good times. Well, folks, those good times are over. There are other kinds of good times, community, work together, the unconditional love of one for another. There's all kinds of good times, you know, just just loving the fact that we live in this immaculate garden, however you want to take it. But maybe one thing we can do as part of the new New Deal is we can make it easier for people to own a home and actually live there and raise a family, and wear it out. Well, on account of it being Labor Day, uh, immediately I think of readings that are appropriate for Labor Day. It's a chance for us to kind of go through our mental libraries and say, well, gee, I know there's something on that subject somewhere. Who would have written it? Well, of course, it would have been Walt Whitman and Carl Sandburg, the two working men's poets, right? Here's a little bit of uh, Walt Whitman called The Carol of Occupations. This is The Carol of Occupations. In the labor of engines and trades and the labor of fields, I find the developments and find the eternal meanings. Workmen and workwomen were all educations, practical and ornamental, well displayed out of me. What would it amount to? Were I as the head teacher, charitable proprietor, wise statement, what would it amount to? Were I to you as the boss employing and paying you, would that satisfy you? The learned, virtuous, benevolent, and the usual terms, a man like me, and never the usual terms. Neither a servant nor a master am I. I take no sooner a large price than a small price. I will have my own, whoever enjoys me. I will be even with you, and you shall be even with me. If you stand at work in a shop, I stand as nigh as the nighest in the same shop. If you bestow gifts on your brother or dearest friend, I demand as good as your brother or dearest friend. If your lover, husband, wife is welcome by day or night, I must be personally as welcome. If you become degraded, criminal, ill, then I become so for your sake. If you remember your foolish and outlawed deeds, do you think I cannot remember my own foolish and outlawed deeds? If you carouse at the table, I carouse at the opposite side of the table. If you meet some stranger in the streets and love him or her, why I often meet strangers in the street and love them. Why? What have you thought of yourself? Is it you, then, that thought yourself less? Is it you that thought the president greater than you, or the rich better off than you, or the educated wiser than you, because you are greasy or pimpled, or that you were once drunk, or a thief, or diseased, or rheumatic, or a prostitute, or are so now, or from frivolity or impotence, or that you are no scholar and never saw your name in print? Do you give in that you are any less immortal? I don't know what's inside the 
the closet of the GOP or what was inside the closet during the uh, W campaign for presidency in 2004. But whatever's in there, Ken Melman, who was a campaign manager for that campaign, is out of that closet. Right. He led Bush's re-election 2004, former chairman of the Republican National Committee, and he confirmed this week that he is gay. Uh, Melman said he had only recently arrived at this conclusion himself. <laughs> was he in bed with another man when he figured it out? Or was he on the subway? Or was, was he dreaming on his own? Could have been reading Tolstoy. You know, these things come to you. I was, I was reading War and Peace, and I realized I was at war with myself, and I was one fine piece. So he recently arrived <laughs> at this conclusion and had just told family members and associates I think his wife may have figured it out. Then again, you don't know. Political marriage, strange bedfellows. Melman is now the most powerful Republican in history to admit being gay and has long been subject to rumors and innuendo about his personal life. It's taken me 43 years to get comfortable with this part of my life, he said. He probably just didn't have the right positions or a book could have made him comfortable. He acknowledged that if he'd come out of the closet sooner, he may have stopped his party shift away from gay marriage. He is now a gay marriage supporter. Well, of course, of course he is. You know, uh, I mean, here's the thing. This is this is this is from the Marine Corps. Okay, this I love the, this. Is the Marine Corps? Yeah. This is uh, the commandant. Looking for one good drone. Yeah, commandant of the Marine Corps. <clears throat> yeah, this guy. Yes, yeah. yes. Okay, he's he's complaining that giving up. Afghanistan or not even not talking about it or doing anything would give the enemy sustenance. You know? Even admitting there's an enemy. Even, yeah, yeah right. just don't bring don't, it up. Don't say anything. General, just shoot. General Conway. General Conway. Uh, he also made clear, as he has in the past, that he remained personally opposed to overturning the don't ask, don't tell law that requires gay men and lesbians in the military to keep their sexual orientation secret or leave the service. I just added that because the Times did, and I guess you have to explain everything these days to people. Mr. Obama or and senior Pentagon leaders, including the chairman Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff have said that the law should be changed to blah, 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 and et cetera, yeah, and all of the yet. rest of it. And General Conway said, we will follow the law, whatever the law prescribes. The Marines cannot be seen as dragging their our feet or some way delaying implementation. However, he said, <clears throat> I can tell you that an overwhelming majority of the Marines would not like to be roomed with a person who is openly homosexual asked what he meant by moral concern, that is the best way to start without violating anybody's sense of moral concern would be to have you sort of volunteer to room with the guy down the hall. Because you're one of them also. Yeah, he said, well, we have some people who are very religious. I couldn't begin to give you a percentage, but I think in some instances we will have people that say homosexuality is wrong and they simply do not want to room with a person of that persuasion because it would go against their religious beliefs. I like, did he say persuasion? Uh, persuasion. Did he yes, actually, he actually say persuasion? Uh, yes, he did, of that persuasion. As if, as if someone has been persuaded into being gay or persuaded into being heterosexual. I didn't have any orientation until I sat down and the Tony Robbins of, of sexual orientation persuaded me. <laughs> well, here's the thing. If it if being, being in the same room with a gay guy goes against their religious beliefs, don't you think they should say, sir, I don't want to go to Afghanistan? You know, we get so much bad and disturbing news here in the midst of the great double dip. 
And uh, people are wondering if Obama is who he said he was. And then there's all of the AFPAC and, and things are just like in turmoil. But there is good news. There's a wonderful article in Time Magazine about the, the real nature of the stimulus bill. And it really does reveal uh, Barack Obama and Joe Biden as social visionaries. And it, it, it's ironic because you've got LBJ with his big civil rights thing being thwarted, really, his whole vision of America being thwarted by Vietnam. And in a sense, what, what Obama is doing, Obama and Biden are doing, is being thwarted by the way that they're dealing with the so-called war on terror, the the occupation of large areas in Afghanistan and and Pakistan and a lot of other stands, including I don't understand, so it's this is good news because this shows you really what his vision for this country is, and it's a good one. So this will be done in two parts. This is the stimulus bill part one. The American Recovery and Reinvestment Act of 2009, President Obama's $787 billion stimulus, has been marketed as a jobs bill, and that's how it's been judged. The White House says it has saved or created about 3 million jobs, helping avoid a depression and end a recession. Republicans mock it as big government, uh, it's a boondoggle that has failed to prevent rampant unemployment despite a massive expansion of the deficit. L- liberals complain that it wasn't massive enough, so you you know, you got people crying at you from both sides. It's an interesting debate. Politically, it's awkward to argue that things would have been even worse without the stimulus, even though that's what most nonpartisan economists believe. But the battle over the Recovery Act's short-term rescue has obscured its more enduring mission, a long-term push to change the country. It was about jobs, sure, but also about fighting oil addiction and global warming, transforming health care and education, and building a competitive 21st century economy. Some Republicans have called it an under-the-radar scramble to advance Obama's agenda. And they've got a good point. Yes, the stimulus has cut taxes for 95% of working Americans, bailed out every state, hustled record amounts of unemployment benefits and other aid to struggling families, and funded more than 100,000 projects to upgrade roads, subways, schools, airports, military bases, and much more. But in the words of Vice President Joe Biden, now the fun stuff starts. The fun stuff about one-sixth of the total cost, is an all-out effort to exploit the crisis to make green energy, green building, and green transportation real, launch green manufacturing industries, computerize a pen-and-paper health system, promote data-driven school reforms, and ramp up the research of the future. This is a chance to do something big, man, Biden said during a 90-minute interview with Time. Yeah, it is a real change. And yes, the Tea Party is going crazy because in the back of their reptile brains, they know this is a form of state socialism. That word socialism really drives people crazy. To me, it has much more to do with the future of the Commonwealth, but it'll just have to work itself out. Well, for starters, the Recovery Act is the most ambitious energy legislation in history, converting the Energy Department into the world's largest venture capital fund. It's pouring $90 billion into clean energy, including unprecedented investments in a smart grid, energy efficiency, electric cars, renewable power from the sun, wind and earth, cleaner coal, advanced biofuels, and factories to manufacture green stuff in the U.S. The act will also triple the number of smart electric meters in our homes, quadruple the number of hybrids in the federal auto fleet, and finance far-out energy research through a new government incubator modeled after the Pentagon agency that fathered the internet. And this does drive a lot of people crazy who don't want to change, who see any any of this kind of implementation of a vision as socialism and state control. And they're going crazy as we speak. 
The only stimulus energy program that's gotten much attention so far, chiefly because it's got off to a slow start, is a $5 billion effort to weatherize homes. But the Recovery Act's line items represent the first steps to a low-carbon economy. It will leverage a very different energy future, says Kristen Mays, the Republican chair of Arizona's Utility Commission. It really moves us towards a tipping point. The stimulus is also stocked with non-energy game changers, like a tenfold increase in funding to expand across to broadband and an effort to sequence more than 2,300 complete human genomes, when only 34 was sequenced with all the previous aid. There's $8 billion for a high-speed passenger rail network, the boldest federal transportation initiative since the interstate highways. There's $4.35 billion in Race to the Top grants to promote accountability in public schools, perhaps the most significant federal education initiative ever. It's already prompted 35 states and the District of Columbia to adopt reforms to qualify for the cash, you know, instead of spanking everybody's butt that's been left behind. There's $20 billion to move health records into the digital age, which should reduce redundant tests, dangerous drug interactions, and errors caused by doctors with chicken scratch handwriting. Health and Human Services Secretary Kathleen Sebelius calls that initiative the foundation for Obama's health care reform and maybe the single biggest component in improving quality and lowering costs. Any of those programs would have been a revolution in its own right. We've seen more reform in the last year than we've seen in decades, and we haven't spent a dime yet, said Education Secretary Arne Duncan. It's staggering how the Recovery Act is driving change. Well, this is amazing stuff, and yet nobody's talking about it. Everybody's like, you know, down in the drawers because we're being double-dipped and gypped, and we're being tripped. That was the point. Critics have complained that while the New Deal left behind iconic monuments, courthouses, parks, the Lincoln Tunnel, the Grand Coulee Dam, this new New Deal will leave a mundane legacy of sewage plants, repaved roads, bus repairs, and caulked windows. In fact, it will create new icons, too. Solar arrays, zero-energy border stations, an eco-friendly Coast Guard uh, headquarters, an advanced synchrotron light source in a New York lab. But its main legacy will be change. The stimulus passed just a month after Obama's inauguration, but it may be his signature effort to reshape America, as well as its government. After Obama's election, Depression scholar Christina Romer delivered a freakout briefing to his transition team, warning that to avoid a 1930s-style collapse, Washington needed to pump at least $800 billion into the frozen economy. And fast. We're in a tailspin, recalls Romer who is about to step down as chair of Obama's Council of Economic Advisors, I was completely sympathetic to the idea that we shouldn't just dig ditches and fill them in, but saving the economy had to be paramount. Obama's economists argued for tax cuts and income transfers to get cash circulating quickly, emergency aid to states to prevent layoffs of cops and teachers, and off-the-shelf highway projects to put people back to work. They wanted a textbook Keynesian response to an economy in cardiac arrest, adding money to existing programs via existing formulas, or handing it to governors, seniors, and first-time homebuyers. They weren't keen to reinvent the wheel. But Obama and Biden also saw a golden opportunity to address priorities. They emphasized shovel-worthy as well as shovel-ready. Biden recalls brainstorming with Obama about an all-in push for a smarter electrical grid that would reduce blackouts, promote renewables, and give families more control over their energy diet. We said, God, wouldn't it be wonderful? Why don't we invest $100 billion? Let's just go build it. 
Well, it takes time to set up new programs, but now money is flowing to deliver high-speed internet to rural areas, spread successful quit-smoking programs, and design the first high-speed rail link from Tampa to Orlando. And deep in the energy department's basement, in a room dubbed The Dungeon, a former McKenzie & Company partner named Matt Rogers has created a government version of Silicon Valley's Sand Hill Road, blasting billions of dollars into clean energy projects through a slew of oversubscribed grant programs. The idea is to transform the entire energy sector, Rogers says. What's exciting is the way it all fits together. Example, the green industrial revolution begins with gee whiz companies like A123 Systems of Waterton, Mass. Founded in 2001 by MIT nanotechnology geeks who landed a $100,000 federal grant, A123 grew into a global player in the lithium-ion battery market with 1,800 employees and five factories in China. It has won $249 million to build two plants in Michigan where it will help supply the first generation of mass market electric cars. At least four of A123 suppliers were receive stimulus money too. The administration is also financing three of the world's first electric car plants, including a $529 million loan to help Fisker Automotive reopen a shuttered General Motors factory in Delaware, which happens to be Biden's home state, and to build sedans powered by A123 batteries. Another A123 customer, Navistar, got cash to build electric trucks in Indiana. And since electric vehicles need juice, the stimulus will also boost the number of U.S. battery charging stations by 3,200%. A123 technology officer Bart Riley told Time, without government, there's no way we'd have done this in the U.S. But now we're going to see the industry reach critical mass here. If you want to stay on top of what's happening with Radio Free Oz or even want to contribute to the show, we have a brand new way for you to do that. Just go to www.twitter.com slash oznetwork and click on the follow button. Then stand by for further instructions. Kind of sounds like Jack Armstrong. Stand by for further instructions. The other master of the uh, uh, labor poem is Carl Sandburg. Uh, and there's a lot of the book entirely called Smoke and Steel. You can imagine what that world was like. Work gangs, he writes. Work gangs. Boxcars run a mile long, and I wonder what they say to each other when they stop a mile long on a sidetrack. Maybe their chatter goes, I came from Fargo with a load of wheat up to the danger line. I came from Omaha with a load of shorthorns, and they splintered my boards. I come from Detroit heavy with a load of flivers. I carried apples from the Hood River last year, and this year bunches of bananas from Florida. They look for me with watermelons from Mississippi next year. Hammers and shovels of work gangs sleep in shop corners, when the dark stars come on the sky and the night watchmen walk and look. Then the hammerheads talk to the handles, then the scoops of the shovels talk, how the day's work nicked and trimmed them, how they swung and lifted all day, how the hands of the work gang smelled of hope in the night of the dark stars, when the curve of the sky is a work gang handle, in the night on the mile-long side tracks. In the night where the hammers and shovels sleep in corners, the night watchmen stuff their pipes with dreams, and sometimes they doze and don't care for nothing. And sometimes they search their heads for meanings, stories, stars. The stuff of it runs like this. A long way we come, a long way to go, long rests and long deep sniffs for our lungs on the way. 
Sleep is a belonging of all, even if all songs are old songs and the singing heart is snuffed out like a switchman's lantern with the oil gone. Even if we forget our names and houses in the finish, the secret of sleep is left us. Sleep belongs to all. Sleep is the first and last and best of all. People singing. People with song mouths connecting with song hearts. People who must sing or die. People whose song hearts break if there is no song mouth. These are my people. Ooh, Frankenfish. U.S. authorities have begun the process to approve the first genetically modified animal for human consumption. I love this country. We, we did this two-part article on how g- genetic engineering of food creates real health problems. No one in the European Union allows any of this stuff on the shelf, and we're busy, ready to put a genetically engineered salmon in the market. We are such frickin' fools! The Food and Drug Administration announced a 60-day period of consultation and public meetings over whether to permit a GM strain of salmon to be eaten by humans, even though it has been called a frankenfish by critics, including moi-mem. The approval process would take less than a year, and if it gets the green light, the fish could be on the market in 18 months. I guess the fish never grows green either. Probably grows real fast and and never, never rots, even from the head, like the FDA. Environmentalists and scientists say that if it's approved, it's likely to open the door to a large range of GM animals being raised for consumption. If it doesn't get approved, scientists say that uh, it'll have a negative effect on research. That's too bad. In part because there will be no money to be made from it. Yeah, no people to make sick, right? I, it, again, it's the old Nike world. Just do it, Frankenfish. Here, let me describe to you what they want to put on the market. The Aqua Advantage Salmon. I love that. The Aqua Advantage Salmon. Honey, what's for dinner? Whoa, I've got some Aqua Advantage Salmon. It's been growing since I bought it at the market. There's enough for the whole neighborhood. It's a modified North Atlantic salmon. It's been created by Aqua Bounty Technologies in Boston, Massachusetts, over 14 years at a cost of $50 million. The company says the salmon grows at twice the speed of similar fish, cutting costs for farmers and greatly increasing production. The genetic modification involves taking a growth hormone gene from a Chinook salmon and joining it with a controlled DNA sequence called a promoter from an ocean pout, an eel-like creature from a different family of marine organisms. So we're going to take a pout, which is an eel, and a Chinook salmon, which is a noble symbol of the very northwest in which I reside, and jam them together and make a fish that never stops growing, even in your stomach. The growth hormone gene is almost identical, almost identical to the equivalent gene in the North Atlantic salmon. The sequence differs by just 1%, but it operates differently because of the new control sequence. Unlike in North Atlantic salmon, which produce growth hormone only in the summer, because that's real, ocean pout control sequence directs the gene to produce hormones all year round. The genetic mashup is then injected into the eggs of North Atlantic salmon, without their permission. Here, it is taken up by the fish's genome, and ultimately the DNA is present in cells throughout the body of the fish. The company uses a different genetic trick to make the fish it proposes to sell to consumers sterile to prevent them from interbreeding. I think if I was one of these GM fish and knew what I was, I wouldn't go looking for any mates. Hey! 
The explanation of the genetic modification on the company's publicity literature aimed at reassuring the public makes no mention of the ocean pout gene. The Chinook growth hormone is the same as the Atlantic salmon growth hormone. It is simply regulated differently. Their ability to grow faster does not change the biological makeup of the fish, the company says. What they're doing actually here is lying. That appears to contradict the explanation of the technology from Aqua Bounty's chief scientific officer, Dr. John Buchanan, who said the fish do incorporate DNA from the ocean pout. But he said there was no intention to mislead. I don't think it is intentionally hidden. It, it, it has been disclosed many times and published in papers, he said, many of which are in my safe and the other I burned in my wastebasket, adding that the description of the website has been simplified to make it less confusing. Because it is new ground for the FDA, there are no regulations about genetically engineered animals, and so it is being evaluated as if it were an animal treated with drugs. Uh, I thought that the FDA had something to do with science and that science had something to do with advancing information. These people are either purposely living in the dark age or they're taking tons of money under the table or both. Benson was a farmer He grew the Minnesota wheat He rode there with his daughter High upon the thresher's seat They broke down on the hillside The radiator spitting steam Went back to get the toolbox So they could fix the old machine with a turn of the wrench And a twist of the screw We can fix the tractor We can make it like new But that day they got a letter They said the power lines would come Right across their farmland Right across the setting sun so they gathered all the family And talked late into the night We cannot let them do this We've got to put up one hell of a fight With a turn of the wrench And a twist of the screw We'll apply a little pressure And we'll see what that will do so they phoned a hundred farmers And drove to the Twin Cities Met there with the governor And they sued the utility But after writing all the letters And paying all the legal costs To the power of the city Once again the farmers lost and in the still of the evening, the wind is all you hear. I watch the waves on the wheat fields alone. I walk the furrows of earth I plant year after year. 
is our land, this is our home This is our land, this is our home So they met there at the tavern But there wasn't much to say The power lines may come But they will not stay With a turn of the wrench And a twist of the screw What was once put together We can easily undo With bandanas on their faces Careful not to make a sound They loosened all the bolts That held the towers to the ground And several weeks later With nobody around The Minnesota wind Blew tower after tower after tower Down with a turn of the wrench And a twist of the screw What was once put together Here it is, the second movement of the Stimulus Symphony. This is such good news. I mean, I know it's hard times, and I know it's difficult and confusing times. 
But if you heard part one, you'll see that Joe Biden and Barack Obama have put through with that stimulus bill an incredible blueprint for changing America. It's not so much about jobs. It's about making the future green and attainable and sustainable. This is from a major and thoughtful article in Time magazine. So the symphony goes on. Part two. The Recovery Act's clean energy push is designed not only to reduce our old economy dependence on fossil fuels that broil the planet, blacken the Gulf, and strengthen foreign petrothugs, but also to avoid replacing it with a new economy that is just as dependent on foreign countries for technology and manufacturing. Last year, Exactly two U.S. factories made advanced batteries for electric vehicles. The stimulus will create 30 new ones, expanding U.S. production capacity from 1% of the global market to 20%, supporting half a million plug-ins and hybrids. The investments extend all along the food chain. A brave new world of electric cars powered by coal plants could be dirtier than the oil-soaked status quo. So the stimulus includes an unheard of $3.4 billion for clean coal projects aiming to sequester or reuse carbon. There are also lucrative loan guarantees for constructing the first American nuclear plants in three decades. I'm not so fond of that, but nothing's perfect. And after the credit crunch froze financing for green energy, stimulus cash has fueled a comeback, putting the U.S. on track to exceed Obama's goal of doubling renewable power by 2012. We're making progress here. I mean, we have, reason, we have a reason to feel good. Lots of reasons to feel bad, but now some real good reasons to feel good. The wind industry added a record 10,000 megawatts in 2009. The stimulus is also supporting the nation's largest photovoltaic solar plant in Florida and what will be the world's two largest solar thermal plants in Arizona and California, plus thousands of solar installations on homes and buildings. The stimulus is helping scores of manufacturers of wind turbines and solar products expand as well. But today's grid can only handle so much wind and solar. A key problem is connecting remote remote wind farms to population centers, so there are billions of dollars for new transmission lines. Then there is a need to find storage capacity for when it isn't windy or sunny outside. The current grid is like a phone system without voicemail, a just-in-time network where power is wasted if it doesn't reach a user the moment it's generated. That's why the Recovery Act is funding dozens of smart grid approaches, providing truckloads of batteries for a grid storage project in California and recycled electric car batteries for a similar effort in Detroit. Today, grid-scale storage, solar energy, and many other green techniques are too costly to compete without subsidies. That's why the stimulus launched the Advanced Research Projects Agency Energy, ARPA-E, a blue-sky fund inspired by the Pentagon's Defense Advanced Research Projects Agencies, boy, that just gets on and on, called DARPA, the, the incubator for GPS, as well as the internet, and of course, the M16. Located in an office building a block from the rest of the energy department, ARPA-E will finance energy research too risky for private funders, focusing on speculative technologies that might dramatically cut the cost of, say, carbon capture, or not. We're taking chances because that's how you put a man on the moon, says Director Arum Majumdar, a material scientist from the University of California, Berkeley. Our idea is it's okay to fail. We think America's pioneers never failed. Hey, I once spent some time with a man who invented the altimeter and aniline dye, Paul Colesman. 
And uh, he said to me, well, what are you, Peter? And I said, well, I'm, I'm an experimental artist. He said, well, you know what an experiment is, he says. Experiment is what fails. When you stop failing, you're no longer experimenting. ARPA-E is funding the new pioneers, mad scientists and engineers whose idea for wind turbines based on jet engines, bacteria to convert carbon dioxide into gasoline, and tiny molten metal batteries to provide cheap high-volt storage are just a a few of their way-out projects. The last idea is the brainchild of MIT's Donald Sandoway, who already has a phototype fuel cell the size of a shot glass. The stimulus will help him create a kind of reverse aluminum smelter to make prototypes the size of a hockey puck and a pizza box. Imagine, now we're going to, we have a new use for pizza boxes, hockey pucks, and shot glasses. Instead of getting us drunk, you know, thrown out of the arena and overweight, it's going to run the country. The ultimate goal is a commercial-scale battery the size of a tractor-trailer that could power an entire neighborhood. We need radical breakthroughs, so we need radical experiments, Sadaway says. These projects send chills down the spine of the carbon world. If a few of them work, Venezuela's Hugo Chavez and Iran's Mahmoud Amenejad, I always have a problem with that crazy guy's name, are out of power. Well, maybe yes, maybe no, but if they're out of power... What comes in the vacuum? Just because we're able to go green, does that mean that our foreign policy is going to be equally green? Are we going to look at the rest of the world and say, let's make them sustainable instead of just a carbon copy of our failed culture? Then again, the easiest way to blow up the energy world would be to stop wasting so much. That's the final link in the chain, a full-throttle push to make energy efficiency a national norm. The Recovery Act is weatherizing 250,000 homes this year. It gave homeowners rebates for energy-efficient appliances, much as the Cash for Clunkers program subsidized fuel-efficient cars. It's retrofitting juice-sucking server farms, factories and power plants, financing research into super-efficient lighting, windows and machinery, and funneling billions into state and local efficiency efforts. It will also retrofit three in four federal buildings. The U.S. government is the nation's largest energy consumer, so this will save big money while boosting demand for geothermal heat pumps, LED lighting, and other energy-saving products. We're so huge, we make markets, says Bob Peck, the General Service Administration's Public Buildings Commissar. GSA's 93-year-old headquarters, now featuring clunky window air conditioners and wire duct tape to ceilings, will get energy-optimized heating, cooling, and lighting systems, glass facades with solar membranes, and a green roof. The makeover should cut its energy use 55%. It might even beta test stimulus-funded windows that harvest sunlight. We'll be the proving ground for innovation in the building industry, Peck says. It all starts with renovating the government. Obama has spent most of his first term trying to clean up messes in the Gulf of Mexico, Iraq and Afghanistan, on Wall Street and Main Street. But the details in the stimulus plan are his real down payment on change. The question is, which changes will last? Will electric cars disappear after the subsidies disappear? Will advanced battery factories migrate back to China? Will bullet trains ever get built? The president wants to extend transformative programs like ARPA-E, but would they be substitutes for the status quo or just additions to tack onto the deficit? And would they survive a Republican Congress? Hey, would any of us survive a Republican Congress? 
Of course, Pete, to go along with work, which we've been talking about, work is a vacation. Today is supposed to be a major vacation day. Well, you know, vacations took a long time to come about. I, I read a book recently called Working at Play, A History of Vacations in the United States by one Cindy S. Aaron. It was an interesting book because who knew what happened when people took off work when they were allowed to? This is just a bit from one chapter. In 1892, Philip G. Herbert, writing for the Century magazine, proposed an elaborate, if entirely impractical, scheme for extending vacations to members of the working class. He suggested that poor tenement dwellers give up their few rooms, store their goods at small expense, and thereby save enough on the rent to pay for their food during the weeks away. Families could move to the south shore of Long Island or into New Jersey where they could pitch tents and live more healthfully and just as cheaply. Herbert estimated that even the typical family of slop shop clothing makers, that's a quote, including two working parents and four children could camp out for 10 weeks at an average weekly expense of not more than $5. He did admit some disadvantages to his proposal. There would be rainy days and the various unpleasant features and hardships of camping out. There would be no corner liquor stores for the man, nor corner gossip for the women. The daily toil might even be a trifle harder. Uh, swell vacation. Owing to lack of conveniences, meat would be difficult to get and keep. Still, he said, the advantages, uh, at least he thought they would far outweigh such minor liabilities just to get people out of their uh, 80 hours of, of work uh, in any given week and out into the field. Well, you know who started this first? The first vacations came from the National Cash Register Company of Dayton, Ohio. They were pioneers in welfare work, but they had a lot of cash registers. And they made up these cash registers, and they sent them all to England, and every single cash register got sent back. And so the president of the company uh, took another look at, uh, at his company, and he claimed to have listened to his employees and responded to each of their demands, a cleaner workplace, lockers for all the workers, shower baths twice a week on the company's time, higher wages, and a bright new factory. Well, he also decided in 1902 to close the factory for a two-week, quote, vacation each summer. During the shutdown, neither hourly nor piece rate workers earned wages, and that, however, let them have a few days off from work. And they had the NCR days, National Cash Register, began the corporate vacation for working-class Americans. Ka-ching! Our buddy Brian Wesley has done it again. The last time he sent us one of these, it was a killer. Here's another one. A Russian court has sentenced a man to more than two dozen years in prison for assaulting a gypsy fortune teller who predicted he would be jailed. <laughs> <laughs> Gennady Osipovich was told by the female fortune teller that she saw a state-owned house in his future which is a Russian euphemism for jail, <laughs> the Moscow Times reported, citing the county's, country's investigative committee. The woman managed to escape the man, but Osipovich stabbed two unidentified witnesses to death during the assault, which happened in October. He was sentenced to 22 years in a maximum security prison. 
He ran out of his fortune-telling session and started killing people because he, she said he was, was going to go to jail. Trying to kill her first because he told she told him he was going to jail. Oh, oh man! You know it's been hot in Russia. They had all those peat fires. It could have, you know, he could have been breathing peat. Who knows? And and, and he would become then a repeat offender. This is George Diabiter making a brief visit to Radio Free Oz uh, just to comment on work, or rather commenting on no work at all, because I am a great believer in not working anymore on Maggie's farm. And just to express it in Mr. Dillon's terms, I ain't gonna work on Maggie's farm no more, no. I ain't gonna work on Maggie's farm no more. Well, I wake up in the morning, fold my hands, and pray for rain. I got a head full of ideas that are driving me insane. It's a shame the way she makes me scrub the floor. I ain't gonna work on Maggie's farm no more. No, I ain't. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time. And so ends our labor on Labor Day. And labor with us. Go on up to RadioFreeOz.com and give us a comment on the show. Talk about what our labors have done for you or what what you're laboring at. Get it, Get in touch. We want to increase the dialogue. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter. That's uh, Twitter.com slash Oz Network. Or go up to Facebook and join the Radio Free Oz uh, page. There's some real interesting stuff going on up there. Dave, uh, how are we going to end this labor? Well, you know, there's been a lot of poetry on the show as yes. it is, so I thought I'd hang back on the on on the Tang poets for at least one show. I, I it's it's interesting just to contemplate the amount of work, you know, that people do for us and around us all the time. All the time. Uh, we went out to eat recently uh, to a restaurant run by one man who calls himself the Grouchy Chef. Yeah. And I thought, well, here's this guy. He's doing it all. He's collecting your money. He's he making your tables. food. He waits the tables. Everything. There's nobody else there. And he tells you where to sit and what to do. He he runs it. It's 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 his place. The grouchy chef. And I thought that's all right. You can be grouchy if you're all if you're all by yourself and you got your whole thing. You know when. How can you be grouchy when you're a cog in a machine? You no, know? you can't. No, can't no afford room to, to be grouchy. You know, down in L.A., they talked about the the. They think they call him the Nazi sushi chef because he was. Mm -hmm. This is this man who was supposed to make this great sushi. It was up there near Lancashire on on Ventura Boulevard. People went there, but they were just afraid of him. And you did exactly what he said, or he kicked you out. That's right. So I went there one day. All right, with a bunch of people, and there he is glowering over Mm -hmm. there, and he and he serves up some of this food, and it's good, you know. And I thought to myself, hmm. And I look over at him, and he looks at me, and I look at him, and we both start to smile, and we both start to laugh. That's the way it is with grouchy chefs. They're really happy inside. Yeah, well, you stay cool or you stay grouchy. We'll be with you again on Radio Free Oz. Ah, oh, that sound. Let's dance, Dave. <laughs> dance away, dance away.